Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be together in the Lord's house to celebrate the, uh, as we start celebrating the Christmas season, especially, we look forward to, to this. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and we uh, always uh, think about how we are preparing for the coming of the King. So today I'm going to read to you from two passages of Scripture. Uh, I've chosen from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I'm going to read for you verse 1 and then skip down to verse 9 and read uh, through verse 14. Now I know in your bulletin it looks like it's chapter 9, verse 14, but that's my fault because uh, I meant 9 through 14 of the same chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to chapter 7 of Daniel, we'll do that. Then after we read this, I'll jump over to the New Testament to Matthew 26. So let's look at this first passage from Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Now, skipping to verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat and his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now let's skip to the 26th chapter of Matthew, and I want to read for you verses 62 uh, to 64. Matthew 26, 62 to 64. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you, do you not answer? What is it then that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is God's Word. Let's bow and have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank You that we can come this morning, that we can come into Your house, that we can come and fellowship with one another, that we can come rest in Christ, our King and Savior. 
We thank you that we can come and hear your word and your truth and that we can come, Father, and ask your Holy Spirit to teach us in it, to teach us what it means and to teach us how that applies to us as people today. So, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for your extra help. And we pray for your presence this morning. In Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. As we think about this time of year, we often think about how uh, there are names, the names of Christ that we often think about at the Christmas season. And of course, Emmanuel comes to mind maybe first, Emmanuel, God with us. And then the famous passage from Isaiah chapter 9 that says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name was the Son of David. We think about that. You know, there's a song that uh, at Christmas time sometimes where all the names of Christ are in it. And there's lots and lots of those that are applied to him in the scriptures. But the ones that we've read today are primarily the names that others gave to Jesus. But what name or title did Jesus give to himself most of all in all of the, uh, in all of the gospels? Well, of course, I've given you the big hint because it's the son of man. Now, <clears throat> when you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we see that 69 times in the first three Gospels is, does Jesus talk to himself and refer to himself as the Son of Man. And 12 times in the Gospel according to John. So today I wanted to look at some of those times with you. I wanted to look at some of those um, usages, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I wanted to look at some of those usages. I want us to see how they're used and what Jesus said about himself by using these. Well, the first one I wanted to look at is from Matthew 8, 20, where Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's kind of interesting. Mark 10, he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. And in, um, in, in another chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 12 of Matthew, when Jesus and his disciples went into the grain fields, you remember he was walking through the grain fields and Jesus gave his disciples permission to go through the grain fields and do what the scribes and the Pharisees thought was terrible, a violation of the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus said, you're hungry, go eat. Go pull the ears and do all that. And when the Pharisees questioned him about it, Jesus looked at him and he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In the 12th chapter of Matthew, he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then back in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, healed a paralyzed man and he said to him, take courage, son. He said, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes in the crowd said, wait a minute, how can 
This guy forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. They were thinking that in their minds. And Jesus knew what they were thinking and he spoke out and he said, this is so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. There are passages here that are both high and low, aren't they? The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. On the other one, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of the Man has power to forgive sins. Now, it's interesting when Jesus starts calling himself the Son of Man, he doesn't say, I am a Son of Man, like we're all son, you know, we're all sons of human beings. We're all human, human beings. He didn't say that at all. What he says is, I'm not a son of man, but I am the son of man. He was very careful to point to what they knew well from the Old Testament, that he was the son of man, spoken of as the powerful person who was going to come from heaven, who was going to be a king, who was going to take his throne. And when he did, he was going to make all things right and new. That's the, the son of man that he was referring to from Daniel chapter 7. Well, the son of man from Daniel is this great exalted king who's coming from heaven, coming from the throne of God. Someone else said the son of man was this divine messianic figure who defeated evil and injustice by ascending to the throne. So it's a, it's a great high title. So what did they think when Jesus started calling himself the Son of Man? You know, they wanted to kill Jesus on many occasions. They wanted to kill him when he made high exalted claims. And here is one time where he's making this wonderful claim to be the Son of Man from the Old Testament. So today what I want us to do is I want us to look at the title, the Son of Man. I want us to look at what people around Jesus thought when he said he was the Son of Man. And I want to see what Jesus, I want with you to see what Jesus was teaching about himself when he called himself the Son of Man. Because you see, if Jesus took the time and the occasions to call himself the, the Son of Man 81 times in the scriptures, then there's something there that we need to definitely not miss. Now, even though this title, the Son of Man, was not listed technically until Daniel chapter 7, the idea of the Son of Man was there from the very beginning. When God created the world, you know, He made mankind. He made, he made humanity. He made them male and female. He made them in His likeness. He named the first man, or the first human, Adam which simply meant man. And he named Eve, of course, mother, mother of all the living. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God said to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, the son of Adam and Eve, will crush your head and you will bruise him on the heel. Adam and Eve lived in hope because of that statement. They lived in hope because God had told them that one day he was going to undo what Satan, what they had done by the fall and what Satan was doing. Adam and Eve lived in hope after that, knowing that one of their descendants would come and restore righteousness in this world. In fact, if you look at Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4 at verse 1, 
You know, when Cain is born, uh, it's interesting that Eve looks and she says, I have gotten a man by the help of the Lord. In other words, she's, she's perhaps thinking that this is the one that's going to undo the curse that they've brought on the world. She was looking already for that son of man, that son of Adam, that son of theirs who would come and crush Satan's hold on the world and set them free to be right again with God. Well, when we look at how this title is used and we look in the Old Testament, we see that the, all throughout the Old Testament, people were looking for this son of man or Messiah. They were looking all along. We think about how Abraham was looking. You know, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the world. How Isaac and Jacob were looking for that promise. We know that David and Solomon were looking for that promise of the Messiah King who would come and deliver the people from sin and death and from the curse. But it didn't happen in the Old Testament. Uh, there were 400 years after between the Testaments, you know, between the book of Malachi and, and the appearance of John the Baptist. And there are these 400, what they call the 400 silent years in which there didn't seem to be a word from God. And people were asking, when John the Baptist appeared finally, are you the one? Are you the one that's coming? Are you the one that's going to set us free? And remember he said, uh, no, there's one coming. I'm not him, but the one, there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to loosen the sandal from his feet. But he's coming. Well, what Jesus used, the way when Jesus used the title, he, he brought some pretty powerful images to mind. Uh, the people in Jesus' day thought Son of Man was like a political savior. Their idea was um, that Jesus would be, or that the Messiah, the Son of Man, would be a great hero, and he would come like a political savior, and he would come deliver us, deliver the people from Rome. They were excited because they thought that they would have a real savior, somebody that would throw the Romans out. You know, they'd been under the, the oppression of foreign governments, and they didn't like it any more than we would. And they said, maybe someday someone is going to come, this great son of man, this one promised as the Messiah. Maybe that one's going to come one day, and what he's going to do is deliver us from the oppression that we've been, that we've been feeling from the Romans. James Montgomery Boyce says, whenever the least bit above average person came along, there were always hundreds and even thousands of people ready to follow him, in hopes that he might be the one that they expected. You know, they were anxious. They were saying, maybe, maybe somebody coming along, maybe John the Baptist, you know, maybe he would be the one to deliver them. Maybe somebody's going to come along and it'll be more than just you know, spiritual, but it'll be political. We'll throw the Romans off. We'll be set free. We'll be able to rule ourselves. We'll be free from the oppression of a foreign government. But Jesus wasn't that. Jesus was not a political savior. He didn't come to defeat Rome and introduce the golden age. We look at some of the things that Jesus said about himself. And Jesus said, the son of man was the exalted ruler from Daniel 7, 
But he was also the one who had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have, you know, he didn't have a big palace to live in. He didn't have uh, hundreds of servants to serve him. He didn't even have a place to lay his head to go to sleep. In Mark 8, 31, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed. Boy, that didn't go along with what <laughs> the people thought about get ready the Ro getting rid of the Romans. You know, they were hoping that they would be set free from foreign powers, but this, one, this man says the Son of Man is coming to suffer many things and be rejected. That didn't fit into their playbook at all. They thought, this can't be right. This can't be right. The people around Jesus thought that he would be a political savior, a great hero, but in fact, he's telling them that I'm the true Son of Man who's going to teach you about what my real role is. Now, so what did Jesus say about his real role, the role that he had before the people? Well, in John 3.13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus was teaching them from the very beginning that he was from heaven, that he was the God-man, that he had come from heaven to bring them um, spiritual, to teach them spiritual truth. In John 6, 62, he said, What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In other words, he, I was up in heaven before. What if you see me go back to where I was before? Jesus is always claiming that he came from heaven, that he's divine, that he's the Son of God, that he's the Savior of the world. Jesus is, you know, all those people who, who read the Bible, and I've had people come up to me and say, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God, did he? And I say, are you kidding? I mean, look at all of these passages. All the great I am statements from the book of John. Can you think he wasn't claiming to be divine by using the great I am name from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is in the burning bush? Uh, what do you mean Jesus never claimed to be God? Look at all of these I am statements. Look at all these statements where he says, you know, the son of man. Uh, the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. The Son of Man, you wait till you see Him ascend where He was before. The Son of Man, I'm the bread of heaven that came down to give life to the world. What do you mean Jesus never claimed to be God? That doesn't fly, y'all. If you read the Bible, you can never say Jesus didn't claim to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He didn't claim, Jesus is not just a great teacher. Jesus is not just a historic figure that came whose life we want to imitate. Jesus is not just a great person or a philosopher that we can take his word or pass it on. Jesus is either who he said he is, or as C.S. Lewis said, he's the man who is on the level of the lunatic who thinks he's a poached egg. You know, he's either who he said he was, or he's a nut. He's crazy. He's claiming things that people in the insane asylum don't even claim. Jesus is teaching them that he came from heaven, that he's the divine Messiah. That's what he said in John chapter 3 that I just read you. And then again in John chapter 3, he's teaching them that the work of the Son of Man was to suffer and to save them. Let me read you from John 3, 14 and 15. Right before... Uh, John 3, 16. 
the God so loved passage. He says, For no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. There's a great claim. That in Jesus, in the Son of Man, in, in him alone is the way to have eternal life. There's one of those great claims of Jesus. Jesus is teaching them by using the title Son of Man that he came from heaven, that he's the Messiah. He came to say that his work was to save people who were lost. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, he's going to be lifted up on the cross. He's going to have to suffer. But in that suffering, he's going to be redemptive. He's going to save us from our sins. And then whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In other words, whoever believes in the Son of Man is going to have eternal life. You know, how would it be if I walked down the street and said to any of you, well, whoever believes in me is going to have eternal life. Well, you'd say, Calvin's crazy. He's a nut. But Jesus said this. Jesus made this great title apply to himself. Now, the Jews were looking for this political savior, looking for somebody that's going to kick Rome out. But Jesus comes and saying, I'm not that. I've come to do more important things now. Later, we'll talk about when everything's going to be remade. Later, we're going to talk about when the world is going to become new. But he says, this, this time, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Jesus taught them that they had to be personally joined to him by faith, that they had to embrace him by faith. In John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54, let me read these for you. John 6, 53 and 54 so Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this is the eat and drink imagery, which reminds us that he's speaking about believing, about taking the truth about Jesus into our innermost being and into our hearts. Again, James Montgomery Boyce said this, to be saved, a person must believe on Jesus. And that belief is a thing that makes Christ as much a part of the believer as literal eating and drinking of him would do. We have to take the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ into the center of our being, just like eating and drinking. And then Jesus <clears throat> used this title of Son of Man to teach them about the judgment that was going to come on the last day. In John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29, let me read these for you. John 5, 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God, Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth, those who did good deeds, to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here's Jesus saying, 
I have come so that uh, I will be the judge on the last day. And as the true exalted son of man, I will bring in a perfect kingdom that will last forever. You see, that's what Jonathan was talking about. Uh, that's what we're looking forward to. This king of all kings, this Lord of all lords, who's coming to rule and to reign and to institute his kingdom. And it's going to be a kingdom that will fill the whole earth and a kingdom that will last forever. See, this is the point of the visions in Daniel. You know, there's a couple of visions, and the visions seem to have a similar focus. They talk about a great statue, and it had different parts, and those different parts symbolize the different kingdoms. And then <clears throat> he talked about the other vision, and he said the different creatures that would rise. And these were indicative of these great kingdoms that were going to come on the earth. There was the Babylonian kingdom. It would rise. But is Babylon a great kingdom today? <laughs> no. It fell. And it's gone into the dust. What about the Medes and the Persians? They had a great kingdom in history. They were powerful. They overwhelmed. The laws of the Medes and Persians couldn't be changed. That's what they said. But that kingdom is gone, isn't it? We come along, the Greeks had this great, uh, they had great philosophy. The Greeks had this great world culture. They, they covered the whole known world for a while. And it was, you know, it was a great, wonderful thing that you saw. But what happened? The Greek culture, is, Greek a powerful, or is Greece a powerful nation today? No, they're on, the, they're on the throes of bankruptcy, have been for about 10 years. What about Rome? Rome was this great power, controlled the earth. A Roman citizen could walk from one end of the empire to the other end of the empire, and he could walk safely. Nobody would touch him because he was a Roman citizen. And if you touched a Roman citizen, if you harmed him, the whole wrath of the Roman Empire would come against you. Rome was so powerful that they could do that and they could say that. Their language was across the world. Their empire reigned. Are they a power today? Is Rome a power today? No. It's gone. Their amphitheaters are crumbling. We can see them. The viaducts are still there that carried the water. We can still see part of the Roman pavements. It was there, but their, their kingdom is gone. Their kingdom is gone. See, nations rise and nations fall. But the book of Daniel tells us, yes, nations rise and fall in this world, but there's a kingdom coming that's going to last forever. It's going to fill the earth. It's going to rule, and the king of all kings is coming. The Lord of all lords is coming, and he's the great son of man, the Messiah, who's going to save us and institute a kingdom that can never be destroyed. You know, all the other world religions began in regional places and have mainly stuck in regional places. Most of the Hindus are in India. You know, most of the Buddhists are out there in the East. Most of the ancestor worshipers are. But Christianity started in the Middle East. It moved to the West. Now it's in what they call the global south. The global south is more Christian. Africa alone has more than, uh, I think they estimate, more than 500 million Christians. And it's going to be a billion by 2050. Can you imagine? 
the growth of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God began. All the other kingdoms have risen and fallen. All the old world religions are trapped in certain geographical areas. But the kingdom of God, the glory of the gospel, has gone across the whole globe. It's like that. It's like something that can never be stopped. It's moved and the kingdom is growing every day. Years ago, I went to a missions conference and I was listening to one of the speakers and he said more than 40,000 people a day are becoming Christians. And that's probably just in China and India and some parts of Africa. The growth of the kingdom of God is so amazing. It is so much growing and we can't take it in. The Greeks rose and fall, the Romans did, the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians, they're all gone. But the power of the gospel is still there. Jesus' kingdom is still going to last forever. Now, what was Jesus teaching all these people who heard him? He was teaching them when he called himself the Son of Man that he was the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel that he was the exalted and final ruler who would judge the world and bring in a perfect kingdom. And he was also the humble son of man who loved and reached out to sinners. You know, when you, if, if our daughter's in Washington, our daughter Anna and her husband and daughter are in Washington this weekend, and, you know, they had to really work hard through somebody that they, they knew in North Carolina to get an opportunity to go to the White House, to go and get a tour of the White House. Not just anybody can do that anymore. You can't just walk in there and get a tour. You have to sign up and you almost have to have an in to get on the list to sign up. I can't walk into Washington, D.C. and go to the White House and knock on the president's door and say, I've just come to see the president today. I just want to see how he is. You know, in Andrew Jackson's day, you could do that. But now we can't do that today. But think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, was concerned not just for government leaders and for world rulers, but he was concerned for prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the sick, lepers, a widow who had just lost a son, uh, a centurion who had a sick slave. Jesus was concerned for all kinds of people, not the high and mighty, but the low, the ones that were the ordinary people. His disciples were tax collectors and fishermen and ordinary people. Jesus was the one that loved and reached out to the poor people, to the people who needed him. He was the one that touched the unclean. He was the one who prayed for and welcomed little children into his arms, even when his own disciples tried to run him off. This means that you don't have to have your act together before you come to Jesus. You don't have to be successful and accomplished. You don't have to be well-known or an author of written books. You can come to Jesus when you're struggling. You can come when your life is messed up. You can come when your marriage is in trouble. You can come when you've lost your job. 
You can come to Jesus when your friends have turned their back on you. My friend Mamadou, when he became a Christian, all of his friends turned their backs on him and wouldn't have anything to do with him. You can come to Jesus when your health is messed up. You can come to Jesus in any situation and for anything. All of us can. You know, Chuck Colson was a high flyer. Chuck Colson was uh, one of the youngest captains in the Marine Corps. He was a lawyer. He was uh, a graduate of Brown University and George Washington Law School. Chuck Colson was a high flyer in government from 1970 to 73. He was special counsel to the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. He was the kind of guy that was known as a fixer. When everything, anything was wrong, he just got behind the scenes and he fixed it for the president. But then Watergate happened. And they tried to burgle uh, Daniel Ellsberg's files and the Pentagon Papers all came out. He was the one that tried to keep all that quiet. He was convicted by Congress and by the courts of, uh, of, uh, of, of, what do you call it? Obstructing justice. Thank you. I couldn't think of that word. He was guilty of obstructing justice. They said he was going to go to prison for one to three years. Chuck's life was really on the skids as far as he was concerned. You remember... He didn't know what to do. I mean, here he'd been special counsel to the president. He'd been in the West Wing. He'd gone on all these trips. He made things right. He was a high flyer. And now all of a sudden he's convicted of, of harming the justice process and of trying to um, subvert justice by hiding what the president had done and what the people below him had done. His political life was over. He had a friend, though, who was a Christian, and this friend witnessed to him. He went to see him one day when, all, when he was very low. His friend had given him the book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and <clears throat> witnessed to him and told him he needed to trust Christ as his Savior. Chuck walked out of that man's house broken. He got in his car and sat in that man's driveway, and he said all he did was cry and pray. And he finally prayed and he said, Lord, I know I need you. All I know is I need you and I want you to save me. Chuck Colson, the hard Marine captain, the lawyer, all this, he was converted to Christ and his whole life was changed. You see, because anybody can come to Jesus, the high, the ones that are high in government lifted up or fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people with jobs like ours, we can all come to Jesus because he cares about us. He's the humble son of man who didn't have a place to sleep and yet he had time for children, for prostitutes, for tax collectors, for sick people, for people who had lost loved ones. You can go to Jesus with any problem. You can go to Jesus with any need. Now, if you look at the book of Daniel and you look at the kingdoms that rose and fell, if you look at the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, if you look at the Roman Empire, you will see that they were all proud kingdoms. 
and they all operated by strong government and by military might. But the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is built on love and sacrifice and service. See, that's what God has called us to do, isn't it? He's called us to be people like Jesus who love the humble, the weak, the needy, the poor. He's called us to love people with problems, to love people who are suffering. The kingdom of God is built on love and sacrifice and service. The true king, the true son of man, was not a proud man like Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you read the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is so proud, you know, his pride has to be cut down and he has to be cut down and live like an animal for seven periods of time because he was high and lifted up in his own view and he thought he was the top of the food chain. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the true king. He's not like that. He was the suffering servant. He came to serve us by giving his life for us on the cross. He came to give us his righteousness and to take away our sins. And don't forget that Jesus is the God-man, the Messiah from heaven, the Son of Man who is coming again. And he's coming from the right hand of power. And he's coming for us. He's coming on clouds of heaven, it says. He's coming to judge and renew the whole world. And if you go back, and if you look at the book of Daniel, and if you look at what it says about his dominion, you'll see that his kingdom has no end. His kingdom has no end. Life on this plane has an end, doesn't it? We have a beginning, we have an end. You know, there's, there's death, and you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time being afraid of death. They're, they're afraid of death that's coming. They're afraid to get sick. But if you go and you look at the book of Daniel and you look what it says about the Lord Jesus, about this one who's been given dominion and power, you'll notice that it says he's the king of all kings. He's the king of all nations. He's the king of all peoples and all language groups. He's been given power and glory and dominion over all of those things. And one day it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, the triumph of Jesus. The ultimate triumph when everything will be under his control. When Satan will be kicked out. When death and evil and suffering and all of those things are gone. He will be Lord and King and his kingdom will fill the whole earth. He's come from heaven, you see. And he's come from heaven for you and for me. And he's come so that we can live out the values of his kingdom, which are love and sacrifice and service, until he comes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that you exalted from your right hand to come for us, the one that you sent to die on the cross to save us, the one that you sent to take away our sins and iniquity and to take them on himself and to give us his righteousness. Thank you, Father, for this Jesus who is ultimately going to triumph when he comes again. And he's going to rule and to reign and to bring justice to the full and to bring righteousness to the full. And Father, we long for that day. We pray that while we're here, you will give us not the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, but the spirit of the Savior, 
so that we love and serve and sacrifice for others. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.